and welcome to the official podcast of the Irish Association of Speech and Language Therapists, the ISLT in Conversation. My name is Andrea Horrigan and I'm a member of the ISLT Pure Committee and here with me today is Clinical Specialist Speech and Language Therapist Jennifer Robertson, who's working as part of the National Cochlear Implant Programme in Beaumont Hospital. An International Cochlear Implant Day is taking place on the 25th of February this year. And the 2016 census has outlined that 2.2% of the population had a hearing-related disability. And as many of us already know, cochlear implants can be life-changing for those with such a difficulty. And as such, to mark International Cochlear Implant Day on the 25th of February, Jennifer has kindly agreed to share her experiences and knowledge with us today. So thanks a million for joining us. You're more than welcome and thank you for inviting me. Not at all. And how are you keeping at the moment? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, getting through the day. Yeah, just about, at least we have nice weather today, but I won't jinx it. <laughs> I can't see out from where I am, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> well, it hasn't rained yet here, so fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so I suppose the first question that I'd like to ask you today is, how did you get involved in working in this area? So it goes back to 1995 when I had been working as a senior in ENT, mainly with patients with head and neck cancers. And I'd worked closely with the now Professor Laura Vianney, who was a senior registrar in ENT at the time. And when she got a consultant post, she decided to set up the first national cochlear implant program in Beaumont. And through her, I learned about cochlear implants and their potential and decided to apply for the first speech and language therapy post on the program when it came up and was lucky enough to get the post. And I have been here ever since, basically. <laughs> and um, did you do any extra training, like, say, formal education to get involved in this area? Or did you just do kind of CPD bits? I did a lot of CPD. I didn't do anything formal like a master's or anything. Um, at the time, Prof. Fianni had done her training through Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and that was where I also went. And I spent some time with the cochlear implant staff over there learning and then would have gone to a number of both national and international conferences, mainly international, because as the only cochlear implant program in Ireland, if you do want to do further education, you need to collaborate at a European or worldwide level. So there has been a lot of that. And um, obviously in the current climate, there's a lot of ongoing on, uh, online training and um, it's an ever changing area. So the CPD is very much ongoing. Yeah, I think that's one of the good things to come out of being online at the moment is how easily available a lot of training is that might not have been before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm hoping that's something that might actually stay even when we can go back to traveling and things. Yeah, fingers crossed, I suppose. I know it's hard sometimes at the moment, but it's one of the positives to look at out of the situation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And um, what has been the most challenging part of your job to date? So I think the most challenging part of the job is probably trying to secure community services and early intervention for children back in the area that we live in. That, sorry, that they live in. Mm -hmm. So obviously as a national service, we're covering the whole country. So even if we had the staff, it's in no way practical for a child to come to Beaumont once a week from Kerry or Donegal or even of kids from the offshore islands. So all the children have a speech and language therapist in their local area, be that through primary care or specialist disability services. But because cochlear implantation happens at a very early age, ideally as close to the child's first birthday as possible for anybody who is congenitally deaf and prelingually deaf, 
we ideally want these kids to receive regular input at that age and it just the resources aren't there in the community so it's it's nobody's fault on the coalface they are all doing their best but the staffing is not there for example in the states they refer to what they call the ehdi the early hearing detection and intervention protocol and this involves screening babies when they're a month diagnosing them by the time they're six weeks old and intervention beginning at six months and we're doing very well with the screening and diagnosis so most babies do have the hearing aids fitted by six weeks but they are absolutely not getting the intervention at six months and a lot of them are not getting the intervention even when they've I, I, for instance I just completed a assessment with a child before lunch who has his implant for a year and he still hasn't seen speech and language therapy where he lives now I know it's been a bad year from a COVID point of view but we've continued to see children throughout and it's just such a shame that they're really struggling um, in the community and we also know that up to 40% of deaf children have complex needs. And a lot of these children need to access uh, early intervention services, multidisciplinary teams. And OT in particular is another area we really struggle to get access to. And many of the kids have sensory needs, which can impact on the uh, consistency of sound processor use and things. So we would love to have better access to um, OT and early intervention teams in general. Of course, so that's probably the most challenging thing. And I feel that the rollout of progressing disability is going to bring new challenges because some of our kids, as they become school age, have been getting a very good service through their schools or units for deaf children. And my understanding is that most of these are going to lose their in-school speech and language therapists through progressing disability. And I think that's going to have a huge negative impact on these kids. Wow, I wasn't aware of that, actually. That's yeah. crazy. Well, certainly I know of one unit and one school that will be losing their in-house um, SLT service and reverting back to their either primary care or network disability team. And I just really don't know how that's going to work, particularly given that many of our children travel huge distances to go to special education. So even if they were allocated an SLT where they live, the likelihood is they wouldn't be home from school in time to see mm -hmm. that speech and language therapist. And do they therefore miss an entire day of school for one hour or 45 minutes of speech and language therapy? You know, so I'm not very optimistic how this is going to work out, but we'll wait and see when it's rolled out. Yeah, of course. And um, I suppose um, a lot of speech and language therapists have probably adapted to teletherapy over the past year uh -huh. or so in particular. And would you find that that has helped with that situation of children not always being able to travel up to Dublin? For us, absolutely. And because it was so important, we had actually started a teletherapy service. Uh, it'll be three years ago in May. So we started that in May 2018, precisely for that reason that it just was not practical for children to travel huge distances, both in terms of time or cost. Um, it also allowed us to work with a number of children who had significant medical issues where they weren't really well enough maybe to come to Dublin. We had one little girl who was undergoing chemo and she continued to access our service online when there's no way she would have been able to come into an acute hospital because she was so immunocompromised. So we rolled out that service back in May 2018. And in fact, we carried out an audit of it a year later, which coincided with kind of a year before everybody else was starting to realize the impact of teletherapy. And we got really positive feedback from the parents. It doesn't work for everybody, particularly younger children or children, we'll say, on the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. But we have overall, we have had great success with it, I have to say. 
Yeah, I think even from my own experiences with teletherapy, you're a lot more inclined to kind of get parents like readily involved in the therapy, which I think has been really great. Yeah, and ideally, and it was interesting, that was part of our survey was what did they find most challenging about the teletherapy Mm. sessions? And that was one of the things they fed back. They were the ones who were having to hold the child's attention. They were the ones who were having to do the activities. So although they reported this as a challenge, we felt it was a good thing because it Mm -hmm. meant we were empowering them more to do the things we wanted them to do for the rest of the time, not just during the session. Yeah, it's almost like parent coaching and therapy in one session, I think, sometimes, which is a good thing. Exactly, exactly. And the kids have become a lot more used to it because now obviously school age children are used to doing it on Zoom classes and things like that, because some of them just didn't quite get it at first. I I nearly came Mm. to blows with one child who couldn't understand why I couldn't smell the flower she was holding up to the screen. (laughs) I kept wanting to know what it smelt of and couldn't understand why I couldn't smell it. (laughs) I was only saying to somebody the other day, before COVID, none of us knew what Zoom is. And now we're all living on it. Yeah, exactly. It's become a verb. Will will we Zoom later? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's like Zoom quizzes and Zoom this now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I suppose on the flip side of that, then, what would be the most rewarding part of your role? Two things stand out. So I love the very sort of early sessions with the little kids when they suddenly turn that corner and suddenly sound starts to have meaning and they realize that speech is out there and hearing those first words so the first time a child comes in and says hiya or bye or whatever and it's just such a huge turning point and you just know things are going to take off so I love that and then at the other end of the journey because I'm here so long there's a lot of the original children who are now adults. And I also get a great kick out of seeing people probably your age in their 20s and some of them even in their 30s coming back as adults to tell me about their new job or to tell me about their family or to tell me they've just come back from backpacking in Australia. And just to know that they were able to do this because they had access to sound, because they developed spoken language and that they're saying, you know, I only was able to do all this because of the opportunities given to me by cochlear implants. Yeah, I think that's an amazing thing. Like, it's crazy to me to think there was a time where cochlear implants didn't exist. And it's just great Uh to see the, like, ever-changing and adapting technology behind it. Exactly, exactly. And it has. It's changed hugely. It's gone. When we started the program here, the sound processor was a big grey box about the size of... um, about the size of what? About the size of two packets of cigarettes, say, or even <laughs> slightly bigger. And it worked off two AA batteries. So you know how big they are. Yeah. And the child had to wear it in a harness strapped to their back. Now it's the same size as behind the ear hearing aid. And it works off a rechargeable cell with, you know, and it's as one child who got his new implant the other day. What was it he said to me? He said, there is light as air I don't even feel I have anything on my ears and that was from a 10 year old (laughs) (laughs) that's brilliant like you wouldn't even notice somebody had one there really which is great exactly exactly and um I suppose of course speech and language therapists wouldn't be the only person involved with um children who get cochlear implants so what would your role be within the multidisciplinary team then so that's a really good point and I probably when you asked me a minute ago what did I sort of enjoy most about the job I probably should have said as well working as part of a true MDT team so on our team here we have surgeons obviously speech and language therapists teachers psychologists audiologists 
physicist, nurse, and admin team. So it is a very varied team. Um, there's a definitely some overlap. So there are things we can all do. We can all troubleshoot if a processor is not working properly. We can all do those kind of things. And then we have a very specific role. So we only work on the speech and language and the audiologist is the one who does the hearing test and the tuning of the sound processors. And in terms of our role, we are involved from the moment a child's severe to profound hearing loss is confirmed and assessment for cochlear implant begins. So we see the kids right through from the assessment phase to see are they going to benefit from implants. And then post implant, we're the ones who see them most regularly for auditory training to wake up the listening part of the brain and teach them to make sense of the auditory signal. And then if it's somebody who is pre-verbally deaf, pre-lingually deaf, working to develop their spoken language skills. We also take on the role of key worker, which means we're responsible for the information sessions, explaining to the parents what is an implant, how does it work, the whole care pathway, what to expect. And um, we would do the sort of the counselling around how they're coping with the whole process as well. Mm. And I suppose leading on from that a bit then, what would your typical workday be if you could summarise it? So there really isn't a typical work day. Mm. They all vary dramatically. And again, I think for me, that's something I do like about the day um, or like about the job. But a typical day nearly always begins with emails and a cup of coffee. So check the emails. Anything that needs to be dealt with urgently will be done first. Then depending on the day, it could be a mixture of seeing children for face-to-face -face sessions, be that online in the current situation or face-to-face -face here either. But a huge part of my role as a clinical specialist is also research and audit and teaching. So on any given day, I might be involved in completing research projects, uh, looking at outcome measures and auditing those. I would do some teaching in the universities and we do parent training days and student placements and things as well. Um, so it can be very varied and we would attend an awful lot of um, MDT meetings, again, these have moved online, particularly for the children with complex needs where cochlear implant is only one part of their care. At the moment, we're about to submit a paper on the outcomes post cochlear implant for children born prematurely. So that's taking quite a bit of time to get that paper just finished and submitted at the moment. Mm. And I don't know now if um, you're able to tell us if the paper hasn't been published, but what kind of findings did you come across in that area? So it hasn't it hasn't even been submitted yet, not to mind published, but um, <laughs> it is finished. So essentially what we have a much higher incidence of premature children on the caseload here. So the average currently incidence for premature births in Ireland is about six percent. And we have found that in our caseload of children, it was 23 percent. So it's over three times the national average. And a lot of these babies would have had a very, very difficult neonatal period. And our question was, does this impact long-term and do the children born prematurely have worse outcomes than the children born full term? And to cut a long story short, not really is the answer. They still have the potential to do very well. There was some slight difference between the groups, but it wasn't found to be statistically significant. But what we did find was there was a higher incidence of additional disabilities or complex needs in the premature group. And for those children, yes, unfortunately, their outcomes were worse. So it wasn't so much about the gestational age. It was more about the outcome and if they 
had a diagnosed intellectual disability or cerebral palsy or autism or something, unfortunately that did impact negatively then on the outcomes. Mm. And another paper that you were involved in, I think was it 2013, um, was about outlining the challenges or outcomes of children with cochlear implants um, who were on the autism spectrum. And one of the findings I thought was quite interesting was um, 3.1% of children with cochlear implants also had a diagnosis of ASD. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could tell me a little bit about that paper maybe. Yeah, so as you say, that was back in 2013. And at the time, the numbers were quite small. And in fact, as of 2020, the incidence or the number of our children with cochlear implants with a dual diagnosis of ASD had actually risen to more than 5%. So it's even higher than it was now. Um, we know, unfortunately, that children with ASD don't always tolerate cochlear implantation or their sound processors. It can be mainly due to sensory issues. So it can either be the physical feel of the sound processor or it can be the auditory stimulation. Obviously, if they're not tolerating their sound processors, they're not going to have as good outcomes. And in that study, now were, at the time, there were only 10 children. Um, we have much more than that now. But at that time, six of the 10, so I guess 60%, were nonverbal, even five years post-implant. Um, two had become non-users, so they didn't use their processors at all. Wow. Um, that would be equate to 2%. Now that has risen to 3.4% of the children with autism don't use their processors. Um, but having said that, there were still two of the 10 who did extremely well with their implants. And one of the things that we found, and I would assume would still be the case, to be honest, it's nearly impossible to predict which are the ones that are going to do well. So it's not that at the time of implant, you can say a definitive, your child won't benefit, your child will. And for a number of these children, if they're having their implant around their first birthday, they don't even have a diagnosis of ASD. There may even be very few red flags. Very often, it is something that only arises later when the children already have their implants. Um, so it's a definite complicating issue. Whereas obviously, if it's a child with cerebral palsy or something, you know about that beforehand. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So the sensory issues are a definite challenge. And then if the ASD co-occurs with learning difficulties, they are the children who do least well with their cochlear implants. Mm. It's an area that I think is amazing to me because it's something I had actually never considered. But of course, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the big change, even say from 2013, is because the aim now is to give children cochlear implants as young as possible. Mm. You often have, literally, we have had children where there have been no warning signs whatsoever when they receive their implant at maybe 11 months of age. And it's only as they hit the 18, 20, 24 months that you suddenly go, okay, now I'm seeing red flags for autism. And then you run into the difficulties. But some of those kids, don't get me wrong, some of those kids will still do really well. It just takes more time and a lot more hard work. And that's where your multidisciplinary team is essential. You need a psychologist, you need an occupational therapist, and you all need to work very closely together. Of course. And um, we probably touched on this a little bit already, but how has COVID, I suppose, over the last year now um, had an impact on your job? Yeah, it's scary to think it's a year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's mad. <laughs> so we, to be honest, have been very lucky. So like the rest of the country, um, the plug was kind of pulled St. Patrick's weekend last year mm -hmm. and our outpatient service ceased apart from emergencies, which were literally only cochlear implant repairs. But 
by the 18th of May, Beaumont had adapted all of our rooms to divide them in half with Perspex. So the therapist is on one side and the child and family or patient or whatever is on the other side. So we resumed service again after the 18th of May. For the last two weeks of May, it was a very reduced service. But to be honest, from June on, we've been a little bit reduced in numbers, but nobody has lost out. And we've done a mixture of face-to-face sessions and online sessions. But I would describe this as pretty much running normally at the moment. That's great to hear because I know so many services and so many speech and language therapists have been actually redeployed, I think. so. I know, yeah. So our therapists were redeployed for those two months that I mentioned to mm. the 18th of May. But that was it was only those two months. And then they employed more permanent swabbers and the speech therapists came back. Um, but we acknowledge we have been very lucky. Bumped has been great in supporting mm. us through that. And we would, when I say we're back to normal, we're definitely seeing slightly less patients because apart from anything else, by the time you've cleaned all the toys thoroughly between children and wiped down all the surfaces and aired the room and all the things we have to do as part of infection control, it does take longer. And there are some families who don't want to travel for appointments. I particularly understand those patients who would get public transport from, we'll say, Kerry or Donegal. It's not coming to the hospital, the problem. It's sitting on a bus for four hours they don't want to do. So they're the ones where we're definitely seeing them online or spreading their appointments out quite far apart. Yeah, of course, like public transport, you'd never think of it like, but it can be kind of scary to even, exactly. and you have to think of all the extra things to attend one appointment that you would have never thought of pre-COVID. Yeah, and we would, like I say, have a lot of children with complex needs. So some of those would be immunocompromised mm. or quite vulnerable and the parents just aren't leaving the house. So you know, they're they're a different cohort, but otherwise we have been very lucky and been able to maintain a relatively good service. Yeah, that's great to hear. And um, I suppose the last question I kind of wanted to ask you was, say if there's somebody listening today, be that a student or a speech and language therapist looking to get involved in this area, what would you say to somebody, I suppose, that's interested in working in the area of cochlear implants? Well, I think the fact that I have been doing this for 26 years now probably speaks volumes. I must enjoy it. I would definitely say go for it. I think it's a great job. Um, We're very lucky. We're always learning about new developments. We have a super team here with True MDT working. We have great opportunities for research and training. And it's just really rewarding to see how the SLT piece fits into the work of all the other team members, the audiologists, teachers, surgeons and psychologists. And to be able to see the very positive impact cochlear implants have when the right supports are in place. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you so, so much for taking the time to share your knowledge and experiences with us today. I know I definitely learned a lot. So thank you so, so much. Not at all. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about what I think is a great area. Definitely a great area. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to interview you. And thank you very much mm-hmm. as well. And don't forget to follow the ISLT on our social medias and keep an eye on our newsletter for our latest updates on our podcast. Thanks for listening.